Hello, welcome to the Head on History Podcast. I am your host, Ali A. Alomi. I'm glad you can be here with me today. Always fun to sit down with my fellow history nerds. I want to start off by reading some of your comments from the internets, from the web, from that mystical, crazy place, the wild, wild west that we call the internet, just so that you feel that we feel that we get to know one another, that there's communication, and it's not just me talking at you, but I wanted to hear what you people you peoples have to say. So I'm going to read uh, some comments left by someone named ECM04. You'll feel quite welcomed if you are beyond the truly introductory lessons of Islam. This is a great podcast to wade a little further into the vast expanse of Islamic thought and history. I very much appreciate the reading recommendations at the end. And he goes on, or she goes on, uh, and uh, giving some wonderful feedback and reviews. But then they say, they ask a question. Also for next season, the Sufis. How on earth did their strain of Islamic thought come about? What are their unique views on Islam? Are they accused of not taking the Quran literally enough? Do they have any friends in the Islamic world? I'd also like to know a little bit more about what Muhammad knew about the religions around him. For example, did Muhammad know about the Catholic Church's belief in the Holy Trinity? Did he know about the intercession intercession prayers to saints? Also, just an episode on the history of the Hajj. Um, just some thoughts. Well, thank Thank you, ECM04, for your feedback. Let me tell you I, that we will definitely be talking about the history of Sufis uh, on in this season. We will also definitely be talking about the history of Muhammad, and we are going to be talking about the history of the Five Pillars um, and the Hajj in particular. So do keep uh, you know tuning in because we will be going over it. We're actually going to talk today about the Quran, and next week we're going to talk about... Um, Muhammad himself, and we'll be talking about Muhammad and what he know, knew about the various religions. Then we're going to move on to talking about Sunnism, Shiism, and Sufism. So hopefully we will answer your questions and you will enjoy this season as well. Thank you for giving me your feedback. Thank you to all of you who continue to comment and provide feedback, whether by putting it on iTunes um, or on social media. If you want to hit up the podcast or just follow along, I'd love to hear from you. You can tweet me or Instagram me at A-A-O-L-O-M-I or use the hashtag Head on History. I do regularly troll through this, scroll through it, and read your comments, and we'll read them occasionally on the air. So, today I want to talk about the history of the Quran. As many of you know, the Quran is the kind of holy book of Islam, but its history is really murky and it is contested by academics. It's also, I think, one aspect of Islam that remains uh, the least critically engaged by the faithful. While there's a lot of Muslims that know various aspects of Islamic history, for example, the the biography of Muhammad um, and all of that, the Quran itself is kind of taken as a granted. Um, And even in the world of the academy, it is the most difficult and challenging aspect of Islamic history because there's really a lot that we just don't know. Uh, and I'll give you some examples. For one, it seems to lack any sense of chronology. Other holy books, like the Bible, are fundamentally chronological. That means that they're organized from uh, earliest to latest. So you can open up the Bible. I literally have a holy Bible right in front of me. And if I open it up, the very first books and chapters are the earliest books and chapters, whereas the, bo- the chapters at the end are the latest. And so there's a certain chronology or narrative, if you will, to the Bible. The same can't be said of the Quran. The Quran just doesn't have that chronology. It's organized sort of from the largest chapter to the smallest, though it starts off with uh, a small invocation, then it goes to Surah Al-Baqarah, which is the longest chapter, and then kind of shortens from then on. And so it's not, it's not, it has no internal chronology in the sense that it doesn't talk about a beginning and then finish with an end. It also doesn't seem to have a narrative chronology, meaning that it's not telling a story from beginning to end. In fact, it kind of moves around thematically. It'll start telling a story about one prophet and then it'll kind of get to the lesson and then move on. So the story remains incomplete or it completes it in a different chapter. In some ways, uh, some literary theorists in particular, when they read the Quran, often 
often talk about it as having kind of a, a sporadic nature, it kind of moves in different directions. And so it kind of unbalances, if you're trying to read it from beginning to end, it kind of unbalances you. And this is something that, that people who don't understand Arabic often talk about when it comes to the Quran. If you pick up like an English translation of the Quran, it's not easy to follow. Even though in Arabic, it's actually not a difficult text. It's not a complicated text. It's not advanced Arabic poetry or anything like that. And in fact, it's actually quite rhythmic and easy to memorize. Hence why young children around the Muslim world are able to kind of memorize it. But like from a just a purely literary point of view, it's complicated. And it's very complicated if you don't speak Arabic. Similarly, when you look at the Bible, the Bible is actually a series of books. It's not a single book. It's a series of books. And each one of those books has a particular theme, and it's very clear. So you, you take a look, example, Genesis, right? Genesis is a very typical Near Eastern creation myth. In fact, if you read Genesis and then you read Epic of Gilgamesh, you'll see a lot of commonalities. It's a typical creation myth. But you read Exodus and Kings, and that's the mythic tribal history of a people. This is our people. These are our kings. This is our story. It has a sort of literary theme to it. Uh, whereas the Leviticus is a series of laws, and the Gospels are semi-biographical. On the other hand, the Quran isn't thematic in any way, shape, or form. And while the surahs have some kind of loose theme, like Surah Al-Baqarah, Surah Al-Nisa, Surah Ikhlas, they have kind of a loose theme, um, you can't really organize it in that way. Some of, the, some of the Quran includes history, some of it is law, but the best way to understand it and this is my opinion as a historian, is that the Quran is fundamentally a liturgical text. That you're not meant to read it as a historical piece, as a work of history. You're not meant to read it as a work of uh, religious laws. Yes, it'll have some religious law in it. Yes, it'll have some history in it. But it's not meant to be a book in a traditional sense. It's not strictly a book, in other words. It's actually a liturgical text meant to be recited as an act of worship. That's why reciting the Quran is such an important component of what Muslims, how Muslims interact with the Quran. It's why there is a sort of this move to memorize the Quran and then recite it, because that's fundamentally how the Quran's origins are. But it also makes it challenging for historians. We don't know a lot about it. But there are some things that we can say. Now, according to the faithful, according to Muslims themselves, the Quran was revealed to Muhammad by the angel Gabriel in 610 CE and was revealed over the course of 20 years. So the Quran isn't revealed in a single moment. There isn't just, here you go, complete book, but rather is supposedly revealed piecemeal over 20 years. In other words, the Quran is super contextual. And it has a deep, deep dialogical component to it. It's almost like God and Muhammad or, and the community are having a conversation. They have a crisis or they have a conflict or they have an issue that they're facing, Muhammad and the community. And then a verse is revealed that addresses that issue. What do we do about slavery? Well, here's a verse about slavery. What do we do about people who are fighting against us? Here is a verse about that. And so there is a real need to contextualize every single verse of the Quran. It's why there's this whole commentaries that, that come about. But the original, so this piecemeal, take, keep that in mind, that piecemeal nature of the Quran whenever we talk about it, that it was revealed over 20 years and it has this kind of complicated history. But the story goes that Muhammad was this pious man, likely one of the Hanifs, though it's not clear if he was a Hanif. For those of you who don't know what a Hanif is, you can check out our first season uh, where we talk about it in the, in the kind of first episode in pre-Islamic Arabia. But he was deeply pious, and he was a man who was uh, very given to fasting and meditation. And during a particular holy month that's known as Ramadan, he goes up into this mountain, the Jabal al-Nur, the mountain of light, into this cave known as Hira. And in this cave, he's meditating, and he's fasting, and he's praying. And he's having this kind of spiritual retreat where he's left Mecca, he's left the bustling urban life, and gone out basically into the desert, up into the mountains, to have a spiritual experience. And he ends up having a theophany. 
he feels this presence in the cave. And it is a massive and awesome presence that feels like it is squeezing him. And he hears a voice and it says, Iqra, recite. And he says, I cannot recite because he was an unlettered man. And he feels this presence squeeze him. And then again, this voice, recite. And he says again, I don't know how to recite. Again, this presence squeezes him tight. Three times this process goes on. Recite, I don't know how to recite, and then squeezing. And suddenly, when he feels like his, his breath is about to be taken from his very body, words start to tumble out of his mouth. Recite in the name of your God who creates. And Muhammad goes, holy smokes. I've gone crazy. There are these dudes known as the Kahan in Arabian society who are possessed by spirits and they recite poetry. I must have become like one of them. What is going on? Clearly I've lost it. And so he stumbles out of the cave, almost falling off the mountain in terror. And then he looks up and on the horizon, he sees a magnificent being. A being whose wings cover the entirety of the horizon. And he says, Muhammad, do not despair, for you are the chosen messenger of God. Muhammad rushes home and flings himself into the arms of his wife, Khadija, where he lays catatonic for hours and days. And it actually takes his wife coaxing him until he finally comes around to it. And eventually he accepts this mantle of prophethood and the relationship with Gabriel. And over a period of 20 years, Gabriel comes to him, recites verses, teaches him this thing called the Quran and he in turn recites the Quran to the people calling him calling them to the faith of Islam that is at least what Muslims believe the issue is that there's not a lot of corroborating evidence for where the Quran actually originates from. Is it something that Muhammad wrote? Is it something that predates Muhammad? Is it something that was written after him? And so historians have to kind of break apart this narrative and try to piece together what little evidence there is. Now, the early attempts at kind of revisiting the issue of the Quran comes from figures like Patricia Crone and Michael Cook, who wrote this kind of fantastic revisionist history of Islam known as Hagarism. And in Hagarism, what they fundamentally argue is that Muhammad was likely a really minor figure. And that in reality, what happened was that there was this massive Arabian Empire that emerged and in this context of Imperial Byzantine and Imperial Sasanians, conquered this vast territory and in that process began myth-making their own origins. In other words, they started to tell their own mythic origins. Well, we are people who were led by Muhammad, and Muhammad was this prophet, and he gave us this Quran. And so for them, Muhammad was a minor figure and really kind of retroactively brought into Islam along with the Quran as a sort of religious justification for what is fundamentally a political and social movement overtaking uh, the Middle East or the ancient Near East. Hagarism uh, is mostly you know, disabused by most historians. It was debunked. There's just not a lot of evidence for their theory. It's an interesting theory. It's a fascinating theory. But even Patricia Crone and Michael Cook admit that they, they kind of made some giant conclusions. They jumped to these giant conclusions that there isn't a lot of evidence for. They still hold that Muhammad was a historical figure, and they argue that the Quran likely was written as a process of several hundred years culminating in the 9th or 10th century. And the reason for this is that most of the texts that we find, most of the kind of completed Qurans, come from the 9th or 10th century. For example, some of the Quran with the Kufic writing, this is from Baghdad and from the Persian world, 10th century. Patricia Crone and Michael Cook's theories, while still, a, I think they opened the door for rethinking the early moments of Islam, they don't quite fit the evidence. And so we have other ar arguments made mostly by uh, historians who push back against Michael uh, Cook and Patricia Crone, led by, uh, quite famously, Fred Donner, who wrote um, Islamic Narratives of Muslim Origins, who also wrote uh, Muhammad and the Believers, a very good, good book, who argue that instead, no, uh, that most of the kind of faithful 
the beliefs of the faithful Muslims, the kind of general outline of it is relatively accurate. Well, we don't know what the actual origins of the Quran are or where, how long it took to develop. We, the evidence leads us to believe with some confidence that the basic structure that Muslims believe about the Quran is true, that there was some type of text probably authored by Muhammad or Muhammad and his companions, um, that it was uh, compiled contemporaneous to Muhammad, it was uh, codified shortly after Muhammad's death, and that the Quran that existed at that time is the Quran that exists much later. He also takes a somewhat ecumenical view of, of Islam, arguing that the early movement of Islam was likely a cold coalition movement. I follow Fred Donner's uh, theory myself. I think the evidence for it is pretty compelling. But also, more importantly, um, recent evidence, recent archaeological archaeological evidence, really disproves Patricia Crone and Michael Cook's arguments. For example, in 2015, there's a manuscript known as the Birmingham Manuscript. It's actually in the University of Birmingham. In England, I should say, because uh, there's a mistake when I see some people say Birmingham. They think Birmingham, Louisiana, <laughs> Alabama. Did I say Louisiana? I meant to say Alabama. But we're talking about the English or the British Birmingham. This is an inside this is an inside joke between me and my friend V, because every time we say Birmingham, <laughs> some people think Alabama, which is not unreasonable, but the University of Birmingham in England is where this manuscript of the Quran actually exists. And in 2015, they actually carbon dated this manuscript. The manuscript is only a couple leaves. Um, and they man- and they carbon dated it and actually carbon dates to about 568 to 645. So it didn't give us an exact period, but it gives us a, a rough estimate. And that estimate um, is actually contemporaneous to Muhammad, maybe a little bit predating Muhammad. Um, so it's likely that the co- compilation happened a lot earlier than the, the kind of official narratives, which indicates by 630, 630-632, Muhammad had completed the Quran, and by the time of, of Uthman in the 650s, he had uh, uh, created the official version, or in other words, created the kind of canonical version of it. So right at Muhammad's death, we have a complete Quran. Right after Muhammad's death, a kind of official state Quran is compiled by Uthman, which is known as the Uthmani Manuscript or the Uthmani Codex. So this Birmingham a manuscript kind of confirms the original Muslim historian's view that, yeah, the Quran was written likely contemporaneous to Muhammad. Indeed, the uh, a very famous uh, professor, professor of uh, Islam and Christianity at Birmingham, David Thomas, wrote, These portions must have been in form that is very close to the form of the Quran read today, supporting the view that the text has undergone little or no alteration and that it can be dated to a point very close to the time it was believed to be revealed. So while historians wouldn't say that, oh yeah, this supernatural entity revealed the Quran to Muhammad, they argue that Muhammad wrote the Quran himself, either himself or as a collaborative effort between him and his companions. An alternative theory being that there was actually some existing text that might have predated Muhammad, maybe some type of monotheistic manuscripts that he then built upon. So the the Quran being a sort of palimpsest, this idea that it's written upon and built upon, that's another favorite theory. But fundamentally, that regardless of which theory you believe, that the basic structure of it being contemporaneous to Muhammad and the Muhammad being either its author or one of its authors is correct and that it was uh, compiled or at least made official within a short time after his death. This makes the Quran in some ways very unique as a religious text because we can to some extent, the evidence points to the accuracy of what we have today. But the Quran that we can read, that we pick up as individuals, is the same Quran, or likely in some regards, similar to the Quran that existed during the time of Muhammad. The same can't be said about other religious texts. For example, the Bible has gone through various redactions. The the kind of manuscripts that we have from the late antique world versus the kind of translations done by King James and others. There's some very big variations. There's books that are left out, chapters that are included, verses that are in- interpolated, whereas the Quran seems to have been mostly kept intact. Uh, based off of this new evidence. That said, we still don't actually know its origins. We don't know if Muhammad was the author of the Quran 
directly, if he was one of its authors, uh, if, for example, him and his companions compiled it, or if it was written by, before Muhammad, like there was a manuscript that then Muhammad built upon. All of these remain to be seen. So the basic structure we can agree upon as historians, but there's still a lot of details that we need to work out. So before we go any further, let's take a quick break and do a rapid fire round just so we can, you know, take a quick moment to process all the information that I just dumped all over you. Uh, let's start off with three questions. Why does any of this matter? How do historians actually use the Quran? And is the Quran the same today as it was back then? Because that's a very important claim for Muslims. So the first, why does any of this matter? It matters because for historians, um, understanding the origins of a text, how a text is developed, is an important way of understanding the way in which power and knowledge intersect with one another. Who are considered authors? Who are considered authoritative? Who have the power to uh, shape religious doctrine? All of these are important to understand a people and to understand history. Knowing the origins of the Quran helps us understand the early Muslim community, how the early Muslim community developed into empires, and where it goes from there. It also helps us understand Islamic beliefs. How do certain Muslim beliefs come about? Um, what are variant understandings and interpretations of the Quran? If there isn't, a, you know, if there are different versions of the Quran or different understandings of it, how does that come to be? So all of this is not just pure kind of archaeological, uh, historical curiosity, but they have real significance for today. And in particular, because for many Muslims, the authenticity of the Quran rests in the fact that it is a sort of unchanged document, that it is the same document that exists now that it existed back then. That's part of the, what's considered for Muslims, the miracle of the Quran. Historians are not interested in proving whether that is true or disproving it. We're interested in what it tells us about a people, what it tells us about that particular moment. So there isn't an agenda. We historians aren't sitting there trying to disprove Muslims or simultaneously trying to prove them, going, oh, look, their, their book is true, nothing of the sort. Instead, what we're interested in is, well, what does that tell us about a people? And that leads us to the second question. How do historians use the Quran? The Quran is kind of tricky to use as a historical document as a primary source, but it can be used, especially if you historicize it. If you recognize, for, for example, the fact that it was revealed piecemeal over 20 years or so, that helps us understand that each verse has a particular context. So that something like a verse about jihad ends up having a particular meaning in a particular time. Then how is that extrapolated? How is that in interpreted over the years? So historians are able to kind of trace the origins of belief, the origins of practium or praxis um, over a period of time. So the Quran is a, is a central part of that. The Quran, the Hadith, they are the primary sources that historians of Islam use, but alongside corroborating evidence. They're not, we don't just use the Quran and the Hadith. We also use documents from the time. For example, one of the ways that we verify that the Quran likely was contemporaneous to Muhammad is the Dome of the Rock. The Dome of the Rock is built very shortly after Muhammad's death, probably in 690. So we're looking at probably a period of uh, 60 years or so. And the Dome of the Rock has some of the earliest inscriptions Arabic inscriptions that still are today. They remain relatively unexamined. But there's some really good work done. If you look at those, those are the inscriptions are from the contemporary Quran. So the Quran that people have today have the same inscriptions from 690 or so. So that gives us some kind of idea of how the Quran was used. Now, why are those inscriptions written on the Dome of the Rock? What does it proclaim? In some ways, it is that we see the sort of distinction and differentiation of Muslim identity by 690. So that people are saying, we are Muslims and we are distinct from everyone else in this region by around the 690. That's a very important thing. And then the final question, is the Quran the same? We believe mostly so. There is a possibility of variant readings, and this goes to the Uthmani Codex. There is some evidence that there were uh, fragments written in which spelling varied. The message and the content is identical regardless of which manuscript you look at, but that there may have been, because Arabic is a predominantly uh, vocal language, it's oral, 
there isn't a lot of evidence of it being a written language until the Quran. And in many ways, one can argue that the Quran itself transforms Arabic into a literary language from a purely oral language. Um, there are some early Nabataean inscriptions that we find, but in general, it was an oral language. Um, there are some variant spellings as a result of that because there is no consensus on how things are spelled in Arabic. And so the Uthmani Codex in some ways both consolidates the Quran going, this is the official Quran, as well as creates the official Arabic language in some regards. Okay, so those are our rapid-fire rounds. Let's move on to the rest of our story. So the Quran, based off of the histories that we find, we can argue that around 610, where Muslims say that Muhammad started to receive the Quran, around the 610s, we see the beginnings of some writing down of the Quran. These are what we call the Quranic fragments. Around 610, it could have started much earlier and it could have started a little bit later. So we don't take um, that 610 as a hard, fast date. Whereas Muslims believe 610, that exact year, is when Muhammad received the revelation from Gabriel. We are more loose in the dating because we're not quite sure. But we know that we start to see fragments. What happens is that the Quran is a fundamentally oral recitation, just like Arabic is an oral language, but that some people start to write this down. The majority of Muslims start to memorize the Quran. But remember, the Quran is revealed piecemeal over 20 years, and more importantly, it's revealed out of order. So the first chapter isn't the first uh, verse that is revealed. In fact, the very first verse that is revealed is, is Surah Alaq. It's 95 or 96, way in the middle of the Qur'an. Um, and so it isn't all revealed in order. But what people start to do is they start to write down the various verses. And they're written on bone fragments, on goat skins and sheep skins. They're written on leaves. So, for example, the uh, uh, Birmingham manuscript is written on leaves and skins. Um, so these fragments start to write down in about 610. By 632 CE or 630 CE, with, within that rough time frame, it's compiled into a single book. This was probably done either at Muhammad's death by Muhammad himself or right after his death by Abu Bakr. Probably. This is, again, the best that we can come to. By the 650s, uh, a, couple years, a couple decades after Muhammad's death, there is an authoritative version of the Quran, and that is known as the Uthmani Codex. That is the rough timeline and history of the Quran, understanding that those dates are fluid and flexible and that they can shift. They can go much earlier or much later, uh, depending on what evidence is revealed over the time. In fact, the, the, the uh, Birmingham manuscript is really a hundred-year time period, so we're not exactly sure, but that's the rough estimate. By 650, though, we're pretty certain that by the turn, by the end of the 600s, by the beginning of the 700s, that there is a singular version of the Quran that most Muslims, from the tip of the Maghreb, that is from Morocco and Libya, all the way over to Afghanistan and India and modern-day Pakistan, there is a single Quran that is used by those Muslims. There likely was one authoritative version kept within the capital, while the Quran itself was memorized, repeated, recited, and taught orally throughout the empire with the original text used as reference. In that way, you didn't rely just on human memory, which is kind of flimsy, but you had a sort of source text that people would refer back to. By this time, we also start to see people attempting to contextualize it. In the 8th century, the 700s, we start to see people write down commentary about the Quran. So it's not just that the Quran is translated. It's not just that the Quran is written down and copies are made that are readily available. Copies from that original uh, authoritative version that is this transcribed. Most of these versions actually that we have that are remaining are from the 9th century. So they're a little bit later, but based off of the kind of archaeological evidence and the dating of the, man, uh, of the kind of fragments, we are reasonably sure that the kind of 9th century text text and documents, or the same text that was compiled within the 600s, from 610 to about 650 CE. The question there is, how do Muslims then deal with the Quran? Uh, 
This is the real fascinating question. First, you begin with a series of commentaries. This has started off what's known a genre of literature known as the tafsir. The tafsir just literally means commentary. And the most famous of this is written by a guy named Muhammad Al-Tabari, who simultaneously writes the commentary and he writes a history known as Tariq wal-Rasul wal-Mulq, that is the history of prophet and kings. So the idea here is that the Qur'an needs some form of historicizing. So though early Muslims don't attempt to question the historicity of the Qur'an, there's not a lot of question. It's taken for granted that the Qur'an was revealed, it was compiled, it's official, done. Unlike academics who are still looking at the historicity of the Qur'an, Muslims are not. But what they do, if they're not looking at the historicity, early Muslims, very early on, historicize the Qur'an. That is, that they put it within its context. Every verse is looked at with its context. First, they divide up the Qur'an into Meccan verses and Medinan verses. The Meccan verses are those verses that are revealed earliest on in Muhammad's prophetic career, or supposedly revealed early on, and they have a particular theme. They're mostly eschatological. That is to say, they have to deal with the end of times. And they're very classically prophetic. They seem to follow a traditional um, uh, structure or syntax as Arabic poetry. That is, that they have a kind of pithy verses that are rhyming couplets. And they call people to warning, and they have a sort of fascinating... Uh, idea about nature. We warn you by the signs and the odd numbers. We warn you by the phases of the moons. By the rising and the setting of the stars, do you not see the wonders of God? O oh, you who do not believe, be warned, so and so. The end of times is near. One of the most kind of famous of these verses is Surah Al-Zalzala, which is the surah of the earthquake, in which literally the surah is only a few lines long. It talks about the earth at the end of times shaking so violently that she throws up her burden that is literally the coffins and the be the dead are thrown out of the earth and then she testifies towards God about the treatment of mankind so there's this kind of like wonderful feeling of like the end is nigh in the in the Meccan verses they're very much about oh you people have gone astray you must be called to God and there's this fascinating like it's like if we were to treat the Quran as God talking to man, there's this really interesting kind of dialogic process. God is is literally questioning man through rhetorical reason. Do you not? Who do you think created the stars? Who do you think created the moons and the signs? Do you think that these ha things happen randomly? So there's this like fascinating almost dialogue that's going on within the Quran, um, or that Muhammad has introduced within the, in the Quran, depending on what your perspective is. And then the second kind of uh, theme is known as the Medinan verses. And the Medinan verses are much longer. They're not pithy, they're not short. They follow a similar structure in the sense that they still use rhyming couplets, but they are much longer. And they tend to be more diverse in their themes. They include elements of history, so we start to see Muslims, or at least the, Quran, the authors of the Quran, very consciously adopt the history of the region. This tells us that Muhammad and the authors of the Quran were very aware of the kind of Arabic and Arabian retellings of biblical stories because those biblical stories are there, but they're not quite the same. So, for example, the story of Moses is constantly found in the Bible. And in fact, Moses is the most cited prophet of the Quran, more so than Muhammad. Muhammad isn't mentioned in the Quran very often, but Moses is. And in the story of Moses, they focus, for example, on the hardening of the heart of Pharaoh, Pharaoh's heart hardening. And this is really emphasizes this idea of tyranny and oppression because that's a very key component of the early Muslim community, right? Resistance. If you listen to our uh, episodes on Jihad, which was episode one and two of this season, you would have heard that the early Muslim community was really focused about this thing called oppression. This idea that there was unjust rulers in the world that would oppress you and that it was your duty to resist it, but to be righteous against it. And the Quran is very clear about that. So it doesn't talk about the story of Exodus. It's very clearly a, the Jewish story of Exodus, but it's not talking about the kind of salvation of the Jewish people. That story is a sort of tribal history, a history of we are a people that were saved by God. In the Quranic version, it's about 
what happens when there is an unjust ruler? God smites the unjust ruler. He sends Moses as his hand of righteousness. And in some ways, that almost acts as a parallel of Muhammad's story. Muhammad is set up to be the new Moses. The Quraysh are these oppressors, and they're these tyrants, and these rich, aristocratic, oligarch bastards. But Muhammad has come down to be the righteous hand of God. So the Quran is very clearly conscious of the kind of Arabian retellings of history. There's also kind of legal prescriptions. If you're going to do this, do this. Don't drink alcohol, for example. There's a common verse in there that's Medinan verse, this idea that you should never be drunk. You should never take khamad, the, the wine. So there's the Medinan verses, which are kind of more about building a society and really building the career of, of Muhammad's prophecy or Muhammad's prophetic career vis-a-vis his predecessors going, oh, look, we are part of the same Judeo-Christian tradition, etc., versus the Meccan verses were very much about warning and calling people to God and whatnot. So the tafsirs divide those up. The tafsirs or the commentaries also go further and go, well, this verse is related to this historical event. If you, for example, take the verses that refer to violence, there's a particular verse known as the verse of the sword, in which we cited during the uh, jihad episode. So I'm going to refer you to the first two seasons in a shameless attempt to get you to listen to previous episodes, where we talk about where in the Quran it says, slay them wherever you find them. And the tafsir contextualizes that. Because that's not a call to just kill whoever you want. That's a specific call within this context of a specific war. And then it's followed up by, and but if they make peace, then you should make peace for God does not like the transgressors. In other words, giving permission for the Muslims to fight against the Quraysh specifically, but also to make peace with their enemies. So the tafsirs do this fantastic job of historicizing the verses of the Quran. And as they're doing so, they're also the commentators of the Quran, like Muhammad al-Tabari, they're also writing history books. So the Quran is deeply related to the early attempts of, of Muslims to write their own history and to understand their history vis-a-vis the sort of cosmological narrative of the Quran. The Quran, therefore, even though it's not a book of history, becomes the central theme of the historical imagination of Muslims. It is the way of them going, we are part of this tradition, and the final manifestation of that tradition is the Quran. So the tafsirs and the uh, uh, the tariqs are all related to the way that Muslims deal with the Quran after it has been compiled. So the first attempts at kind of a dealing with, with the Quran and trying to understand it come in the form of the commentaries, where we mentioned the tafsir, the attempt to historicize the Quran. The second kind of attempts of dealing with the Quran, um, and both of these these kind of attempts then are become mainstream Islam. The second attempts are is a theological position. So you first have the commentaries, which is an attempt to historicize and understand the Quran within a particular context. Then it is the attempt to understand the Quran's place within Islam's belief system. And this is done in the 9th century uh, under the Abbasid Caliphate. Uh, Khalif al-Ma'mun in particular uh, leads what's known as the Mihna. The Mihna is a kind of moment of, kind of, I guess you could compare it to the Inquisition, but less Inquisition-like, that you weren't out persecuting people. But what happened was there was an attempt to really codify Islamic belief under the opposites. Al-Ma'mun favored, there was two groups of people that were really debating the nature of the Qur'an during this time period. One was the Ahli al-Hadith, that is the people of the Hadith, and the other was known as the Muta'zili. The Ahli al-Hadith had developed under the Umayyads early. They were quietists in that they were not interested, they had not interested in the politics of governing, but they were interested in following the strict interpretation of the Qur'an, and they understood the Qur'an vis-a-vis the compilation of the hadiths. The hadiths are the sayings of Muhammad. In other words, they used Muhammad's life to understand the various verses of the Qur'an, and they would emulate Muhammad's life. The hadiths, therefore, they were known as Ahli al-Hadith, the people of the hadiths. Because they were quietists, the early caliphs actually favored these people because they weren't political rivals. But uh, Ma'mun had inclinations towards the Aliyid sect. The Aliyids were the proto-Shiites. They were a political party that were affiliated with the lineage of Muhammad that eventually becomes Shiaism. And this, uh, being he himself quite a learned scholar, he favored what was known as the Mutazali 
perspective. And the Ahl al-Hadith perspective argued that the Qur'an was uh, co-eternal with God. That is, that the Qur'an pre-existed its physical manifestation in the form of a book and ink. That it exists in time immemorial, in eternity with God. It is eternal, co-eternal. The Mutazili argue that if the Qur'an is co-eternal, then it then competes with God's divinity. That the Qur'an is created, not co-eternal. These two perspectives are not unlike the debate that we see in the 4th century Christianity in the Council of Nicaea and subsequent councils regarding the nature of Christ. Is Christ the Logos? co-equal and co-eternal with God or not. The same thing from for Muslims, there is no Christ figure. There is the Quran. Therefore the Quran acts as the sort of the bridge between a transcendent deity that is kind of uh, impossible to connect with with an imminent attempt to uh, anthropomorphize him. And the Ahli Hadith do. They treat God in a sort of anthropomorphic sense. God has certain qualities. Whereas the Mu'tazili see the him much more in a sort of philosophical principle. He is a creator, a prime mover. He is sublime justice, but he's not anthropomorphic. And so these two positions, right, that try to grapple with both the nature of God and the nature of the Qur'an are dealt with in the Abbasid period. Al-Mu'mun originally favors the Mu'tazili position, and he puts many of the Ahli al-Hadith in prison. Most famously, Ahmad ibn Hanbal, who eventually goes on to found the Hanbali school. Eventually, however, his subsequent uh, Khalis, the ones that come after him, start to adopt the Ahli al-Hadith position, mainly because the Ahli al-Hadith were not a threat to the Khalif's authority. Unlike the Muta'zili who had this notion of sublime justice, therefore even the Khalif would have to be submissive to that form of justice, whereas the Ahli al-Hadith did not have that, they were quietists. And this is very important for the understanding of the Qur'an. What eventually emerges is the Ashari position. The Ashari position kind of takes from both. It says, the Qur'an is co-eternal in its, in, in its, the words that it uses. The language of the Qur'an is eternal with God. But the ink and the book is created. So the physical Qur'an that you hold in your hand is a creation. It's a physical object. It's created, it has a beginning, and it can have an end. But the Qur'an as it exists in the imagination, in the soul, in the divine, that's eternal. So it's a kind of compromised position. That becomes the orthodox position of Islam, both in the Shia perspective and in the Sunni perspective. So you have the tafsirs, which establishes the historicity, the attempts to historicize the Qur'an. Then you have the theology, which establishes the nature of the Qur'an within the cosmology of Islam and Muslims. Those to become the foundings of how the Quran is viewed in is within Islam itself and most historians agree that this is a process it takes a series of centuries and decades before this is done and unlike uh, in Christianity it's not done through an official body there isn't a church or a mosque or or a caliphate that does it even though al-ma'mun starts to arbitrate this the reality is that these positions, both the writing down of the hadiths, the writing down of the commentary, the uh, interpretation of the Quran, the theology behind the Quran, all of this is done by private individuals, individual scholars who are responding to kind of the historical political failures within the caliphate and so develop the kind of theological components of the Quran. Sufism also accepts this nature of the Quran, but it goes further by saying that the literal Quran has an outward meaning versus an inward meaning. This is known as the Zahir and the Batin in Sufism. And this develops as a result of the fact that the Mina is a period of political turmoil. The Khalifs are trying to get involved, but the Khalifs are political rulers. They're not theologians, they're not scholars, they're not experts. So they don't have the same authority that, say, the Pope or a bishop does. And so the Sufis reject the sort of theological infighting and the political infighting and instead argue for a position that both compromises but also is a removal of the authoritative figure and a turn towards inward communal authority.
away from religious scholars to small communities with one sheikh in the center. The Quran, the outward Quran, is accessible to all. The inward Quran is transmitted vis-a-vis sheikh to sheikh. So you would find your sheikh, you would learn the outward Quran, and then its inward meaning from the sheikh. That is a his- result of that kind of historical infighting and the rejection of that historical infighting. In some regards, Sufism represents that fascinating blend of both heresy, according to Orthodox, some of their beliefs are considered quote-unquote heresy, but also an absorption of orthodoxy. Sometimes there's an attempt to overgeneralize Sufis as oh, just heretics, or they weren't part of Orthodox Islam. That's not true. Many of them, like Imam Ghazali become very important orthodox figures. But this is the how the Quran is treated within the thinking of Islam. And it's by the 10th century that this is formalized, it is institutionalized vis-a-vis madrasas, that is religious schools, and it becomes the dominant way that the Quran is thought about even to this day. The Quran has historical context vis-a-vis the tafsirs. People still cite the tafsirs. They still, like the Ahli al-Hadith, use the hadiths and the example of Muhammad to contextualize and give examples of Quranic principles while simultaneously maintaining that the Quran is both eternal in its imagined form and created vis-a-vis its physical. The book is just a book. So all of that, 10th century. For the historian, that's an important understanding, that this is a long process from the 7th century all the way to the 10th century, several centuries before the ideas of the Qur'an are fully institutionalized within Islam itself, even if the Qur'an itself may have likely been contemporaneous with Muhammad. So I'm just going to end with kind of a final little summary so that you can take away a short nugget of what it is that we're trying to do. So based off of the history of of the Qur'an, we understand that there are debates. There are some schools of thought that argue that the Qur'an um, was created much later than Muhammad, uh, or what Muslims believe. And this is epitomized by people like Patricia Crone and Michael Cook. They argue that the Quran developed over a series of centuries after the supposed time of Muhammad's life, and it was really kind of an imperial construction to justify the Muslim society and empire that emerged. This is written in the book Hagarism. It's mostly been debunked by uh, the historical, uh, recent historical developments. The second uh, theory is that the Quran was likely composed later, but that they had early components, and this is epitomized by someone named Christoph Luxenberg, who writes this fantastic uh, book, and he argues that the Quran has other sources than Muhammad, that there was likely a, sor- a sort of Syriac example or fragment of religious text, maybe some type of lexicon of some sort, that Muhammad built upon, and then later Muslims and Khalifs built upon, so that it was a, a large text that was built upon several decades, starting before Muhammad and ending way after Muhammad's death. The more most uh, kind of mainstream view nowadays is led by Fred Donner. The argument being that the Quran likely was authored by Muhammad himself, and it was contemporaneous to his moment. That the rough structure of what Muslims believe as the Quran being revealed, being compiled by the time of Muhammad's death, and then authorized by Abu Bakr and then later Uthman, is roughly true. And it is evidenced in both the uh, Birmingham manuscript that we find, as well as in 1972, we found uh, the manuscript of Sana, which is these manuscripts in Yemen that also date the Quran accurately to uh, the time of Muhammad. The actual physical text itself is transformed over a period of several hundred years. During the uh, Umayyad period, there was only a couple Qurans that were translated. During the Abbasid period, um, you had this man named Al-Khalil ibn Ahmad al-Farahdi. This man created what's known as the Tashqil. The Tashqil is the diacritical marks. That is, the dots that you see right? The, the kind of lines that you see over various letters in Arabic. That is codifies and canonized the pronunciations. So by Uthman's time period, you had canonized the book. By the time of Al-Farahidi, you had canonized 
the pronunciation of the Quran. The Abbasids begin to copy the Quran down in large form. It's not copied into a singular book, but in multiple volumes. And it's usually evident by the fact that they use these giant-ass scripts, known as the Abbasid script, um, and it has a smaller set of lines per page. So you'd have like four lines per page rather than the kind of book form that we see now. And it isn't until the 13th century that the Quran is copied down into the form that we see it today. So this is kind of the rough history of, of the Quran, likely contemporaneous to Muhammad, probably the most of the basic outlines of the Muslim beliefs about the Quran are relatively accurate. Yes, it was probably written down during the time of Muhammad, compiled shortly after his death, canonized over a period of several years, and then formalized into the form that we see it over a couple centuries. That includes the way that the text was translated, includes the way that the text was written down and transcribed, diacritical marks, even script, but that the content of it remains relatively unchanged. When we look at the Quran today, it has almost the it is identical to the Quran that we find in the manuscripts of Birmingham and in Yemen. That is the rough history of the Quran with a little summary at the end. I'm going to conclude with some books if you're interested in this topic. It is a really fascinating topic, but it involves a lot of archaeology, a lot of um, philology, the study of languages, the study of texts, um, but it is really, really fascinating. So I'm going to give you two books from each, each kind of perspective. The first book is by Fred Donner. It's called Muhammad and the Believers at the Origins of Islam. This really encapsulates a lot of his articles that he had written and then compiles them into his larger thesis of early Islam being really an ecumenical coalition-based movement. It's the a theory that I subscribe to myself, um, and I think it has the most compelling evidence. As a historian of early Islam in particular, I uh, use his theories and build upon his. I have, I've diverged from Fred Donner in certain ways. For example, I focus a lot on the Ridda Wars, the Apostasy Wars, as the moment in which Islam starts to differentiate itself um, and it's transformed into a kind of imperial allegiance from a coalition community based uh, but it is fantastic book so Muhammad and the Believers by Fred Donner his other book on this particular topic Narratives of Islamic Origins the Beginnings of Islamic Historical Writing Studies in Late Antiquity and Early Islam Volume 2 uh, Volume 14 really really good book it was written in 1998 is a little bit older uh, but a good book they're kind of hard to find, and the ones that you do find are a little bit expensive, but you can find uh, kind of examples of it online, PDFs and stuff like that. Not that I'm encouraging anyone in any way, shape, or form to pyrite, um, but that's uh, one of the books that I would recommend. This, uh, those, that's the first perspective. That argues that histor the historical evidence that the Quran is likely contemporaneous to Muhammad. I find it compelling. It's what I subscribe to. But the alternative to it is uh, Patricia Crone's work. And I think uh, Patricia Crone's Meccan trade and the rise of Islam is a really good alternative theory. I think some of it has been debunked by a lot of the kind of recent developments. It's a little bit older of a book, but it is a good book. And I think it does provide an alternative version of it. And some of her thesis, I think, is valid and and right. I think that we should accept that the, the role of expansion and imperial expansion in particular and the way that Muslim storytellers think back, that's a very important kind of cultural approach to Islam, understanding that how people talk about themselves means something. So I think in, in regards, even if some of her thesis may not be correct in my opinion, I think what she's trying to do is something that we should all, as early historians of early Islam, try to do. So I would recommend Meccan Trade and the Rise of Islam, and her second book with Michael Crook, so Patricia Crone and Michael Crook's Hagarism very, very good book. Those are my four recommendations. I hope that you have enjoyed this podcast. I know that the season two has been a little bit longer, but hopefully they are enjoyable and fun. We're getting deep down in the, into the kind of details of Islam, providing you with things that are really academic, but hopefully accessible. Let me know what you think. Hopefully you enjoyed this. Uh, if not, then screw you. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I'm going to end it today. Have a great, great day. And remember, stay smart, you beautiful history nerds. Mm -hmm.